0: I'm Lauren DeYoung Shulman, and you're listening to the Women in NATSEC podcast miniseries on the national security workforce. Why is it the people behind the policy are so often an afterthought in national security strategy? What has to change to bridge today's national security talent with tomorrow's challenges? Tune in for big and small ideas from experts across the field. here with Laura Jr. as part of our National Security Human Capital mini-series on the Women in National Security podcast. Dr. Laura Jr. is the Director for Research and Strategic Support at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies. Laura, thank you so much for joining me on a podcast on one of my favorite topics.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: So before we dig into our big ideas here, I first wanted to ask what. It was one of the first moments you really recognized that you were part of the national security workforce, where it really kind of hit home to you, this is what this is a, a different world than I had been in before, or this is this is what national security really means to you in some way?
1: It was um at the beginning of the Obama administration. I had grown up, you know, in in my professional career at the Center for Naval Analyses, one of the FFRDCs. So while we were affiliated with the department, we were we were not uh, government employees. But then I took a, um, a GS fifteen position over in what was the old PA and E in OSD, It was just then um, turning into OSD Cape. And Secretary Gates was there, and you had actually served together during this part. And I was working on, so so. CAPE, the entire department was trying to get a hold of acquisition costs and, mm-hmm. and, and all of those programs that were running amok. And at the same time, um, the secretary was very concerned about eventual de- diminishing war funding and trying to get a hold of um, overhead costs throughout the department. And a big part of that was controlling the number of civilians, um, civilian SESs and contractors. And what I realized during that part point, that was the first time I, re- I had actually explored the nature of the civilian workforce mm-hmm. or the DOD workforce writ large um, and understood sort of the nature of it and the difficulties in managing it across the board.
0: So what you have been uh, in a variety of roles in our wonderful Department of Defense and related communities. Um, what, in your opinion, is so great about the national security workforce? What makes it special?
1: It, it is full of real professionals um, in the entire I've been working around it for about 25 years now. And the people who work in this area are among the most talented and the most committed people I have ever had the pleasure of working with. And that runs so counter to the dismissive narratives you hear, especially circulating furloughs, you know, that sort of decry... Um, federal civilians as bureaucrats that are not particularly good at their job. That's, that was just never my experience. I mean, I get it. It's a big workforce. Not everybody's equally talented or motivated, mm-hmm. but the folks I work with, and maybe it was because it was wartime, um, they were extremely committed to their jobs. And
0: what is it you know, related to that? Um, are there things about the folks who are called to work in national security or who you served with in various roles at DOD, things about them that you think the American people or maybe Congress doesn't fully understand in terms of why they serve or what they do every day or, or challenges that they run oh, into? Abso- absolutely. The the mistaken stereotype
1: is um, a, a bureaucratic pencil pusher in Washington, in Washington D.C. area who if they weren't at their desk for a month no one would notice <laughs> and that's just not true the the vast majority are not employed in the D.C. area and they tend to be even in DOD they tend to be the ship workers the, the folks that keep our airplanes running the folks that that man our training ranges mm-hmm. the uh the the uh, me- medical professional, um, sort of not not the front end of that sphere but the the infrastructure on the back that take care of our um, military members and their families. So these these are folks who do substantive work every day. They're not the administrative. They're they're not all the administrative stereotype.
0: You mentioned that. You know... Stereotype about if they were gone from their desk for a month, nobody would notice. I remember vividly, in a couple of different roles, leaving my desk just to go get a glass of water and coming back to find my boss sitting there, being like, "I've been waiting. Where have you been? Like, oh, right? it's been 45 seconds. It could have waited, but in their mind, it couldn't. It's a, it's right, a, it's a right. different kind of atmosphere sometimes there. Um, what are You've talked in before Congress and other sort of forums before about some of the challenges you see in the civilian workforce, uh, particularly at DOD. Can you, and they are, I mean, in my mind, I could go on for hours, but in your mind, what are some of the top ones that you encountered in terms of getting, having that workforce get the most out of their experience, but also having the American people uh, get the most out of that? the folks who want to serve in that workforce?
1: Yeah, absolutely, because I, I tell you, it, the, the people who are frustrated with dod or federal civilians at large i believe they're really frustrated with the system that that sort of encompasses them and and here's here's what i mean by that and here's here's where the problems lie it is it is really hard just as to, to sit down you, you you say you're in a you're you're in your office and you actually have the ability to hire somebody mm-hmm. which is very hard to do these days because the 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 dod or federal workforce has been declining gently um over the last 20 years give or take mm-hmm. so there there are real caps on the number of hiring slots or billets that we can have so that just just having a free billet is this unusual event, right? So let's say you're in your office, you have this wonderful potential of a free unoccupied billet that you can hire against. Well, the the nature of any relevant job changes over time. So I, I know I had this experience, I needed a really good readiness analyst, somebody who could do empirical analytic skills, who could write well, who could frame a problem well, I had I can't just write that as the the work that I see. I have to go back into an arcane GS system and find an occupational code that matches. And there's this arcane structure that goes with it. So that's challenge number 1. Challenge number 2 is just the whole USA jobs concept. It can take anywhere from three to six months to hire a typical employee. And then once you get them in, um, the, the the fact of the matter is it's very difficult to, uh, to really compensate on a merit-based system. Um, if, if you have a mediocre or worse employee, a manager has very very little recourse i i have had um only a small number of problematic employees and these folks were truly truly problematic in toxic workplace environment um uh insubordinate just really quite atrocious and i had to take day, weekly notes on what they did wrong that week for over a year a year to two year period um, in order to get the the um, lawyers, the DoD lawyers to even consider actions to t- take this person out of the workplace. And that's why most people won't do it. Um, I've and I found that um, I think about seven or eight years ago was the first time I, I actively tried to manage, my workforce um, and remove somebody who was not a team player, not very good, and I was astounded by the my inability to do that. Just absolutely astounded. The then because there is this tendency that once people get in these billets, there's not much you can do to require them to keep their skills up or adapt. Mm-hmm. Um, there's very little incentive on their part. And what you have is, in almost every office that I've worked in, you always have that small population of folks who are just coasting. And the larger population of, of truly talented people end up having to unfairly take that burden.
0: You, know, you talked about uh, trying to hire that readiness analyst, and that must have been at the point where the service chiefs were before Congress on a semi-quarterly basis saying yes. readiness is the biggest crisis we are facing. It was saying it internally, it was saying it, they were saying it publicly, Congress is recognizing it. And that's something that I have struggled to articulate to people who haven't worked in national security before that you can't have a, an urgent need that everyone recognizes is an, an extremely right. high priority. You can have the resources to hire somebody for that urgent need and you might even have an individual picked out that you think is going to be able to meet that on a timely and useful basis and even with all of those things in alignment you still may not be able to actually bring that person on board in a way that's going to serve national security in any way and like that's mind boggling to somebody who works at google or even a small business right right absolutely and it was i it was
1: i it, here i am in the office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness, <laughs> and I can't figure out how to hire somebody. <laughs> yep. And, and and in the end, um, I gave up after a year of not wanting to um, uh, jeopardize my standards because I would rather have nobody than a, a, a bad fit. Right. And in and in this case, I remember. I remember. The first, the first draft from USA Jobs. Anybody that had ever fi- filled out a readiness report, a sorts report, would pop up on USA Jobs, which almost was almost like a random personnel generator. Wow! So those folks, you know, nobody is being selected on true analytic skills. Um, it was, it was a very diff. It was very frustrating, and it's, it's, you know, copy paste throughout the department. Hmm
0: this is something that people don't realize about the GS system, uh, is uh, the, the personal mechanisms that are used to hire, is that much of the policy and regulations surrounding it were drafted many, many decades ago for a really different workforce of clerks, uh, and that, that are not required to have the ca- same kinds of extremely diverse skill sets that today's federal workforce does. Uh, making right. it- We've- we talk about this with the military all the time
1: that that the way we fight wars is becoming increase, increasingly technical. Well, a lot you you the the same types of evolutions are happening on the civilian workforce. But once a if the nature of the work in an organization changes, and if that change uh, translates to a different skill set of the employees, you don't have the authority. To, you know, hire a new workforce with better skill sets. The best you can hope to do is to try to retrain the workforce you have, which isn't always um, it doesn't always work. Quite frankly, you you know, if you have folks who were hired originally under an administrative requirement and then now they have to turn into an analytic requirement, you just not everybody. Can adapt to those those new skills, um, but as the as the lead of the agency, you don't have any choice, and I see that day in day out.
0: So now that we've depressed one another with yeah. the problems, what you have encountered, I think, a lot of opportunities to pr- apply big and small fixes to this system. But if there is one or a couple of things that you would point to that would greatly improve our ability to bring in the right talent for national security, what would it be?
1: Well, so one of the things that stood out, I didn't, I, I didn't realize the frustrations. But when we first started talking, I told you the, about the fact that I worked at CAPE. CAPE hires in an unusual way that I didn't understand when I was first brought on. They're hired. Um, it's an accepted service. It's a specific hiring practice where you hire credentialed people. It's usually used for lawyers and, and folks with a certification. In this case, it was for um, uh with, or orsas is what the uh, army calls them it's mm-hmm. for um, discrete analysts and they had the hiring authority to to go out um, outside of USA jobs and hire folks and it tended to be PhDs or folks that are about ready to defend their dissertation and and so they were able to hire this workforce it was it it is um, has different authorities than your typical GS workforce but it it allowed them to get the skill sets that they were looking for and then more recently um, i'm now with national defense university and universities and the uh, as well as elements of the intelligence sector get to hire under a title 10 hiring authority and this for me was a life-changing it it's an ability to hire professionals um for a term So at NDU, typically people are hired, professors, researchers are hired on a three-year contract. And the reason why Congress gave them that authority is because they recognized that the curriculum at a university will necessarily change. You want to make sure that you keep a fresh and current faculty there. So I, I am the director of research, and what I see, what I'm able to do is... You know you're you're you hire um i i'm looking for a russian uh, a senior russian researcher now i can actually ask for exactly what i need that person will come in on a three-year term and everybody that's there including me i'm also a term employee mm-hmm. there you know you're on a on a, uh, a term system and the 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 vibe in the organization is much different. You you can be um, effectively non-employed by NDU any longer if one of two things happen. Um, either the university doesn't need your skill set anymore, and at the end of your three-year term you will just not be renewed, or if you fail to perform to the standards. So we have we're rated just like anybody else, we have performance standards. Um, And so rather the the dynamic of keeping current changes from the responsibility of the institution to the responsibility of the individual. Mm -hmm. You have now the incentive to perform very well and to to make sure that you're keeping your own skill sets up so you remain competitive, you know, to keep being renewed term after term. And it's, it's it's not a draconian, I know that there's a lot of concern that it's a draconian way to manage a workforce. It doesn't have to be. The way that we do it at NDU um, is that we have a review process every year, and so if you're if you're going to recommend non-renewal, you actually have to tell the leadership at NTU, build your case to the leadership of NTU. So there's really no chance of spurious or personality conflict human man, uh, human capital management decisions. It's it's, a, it's like that weird combination of the civilian workforce and um, the the protections that we've come to associate with a federal workforce it's something i wish we would do throughout the department more
0: and this addresses that also addresses one of the biggest challenges i see in the typical dod civilian or actually rest of government civilian workforce which is that when you take an off-ramp from being you know a regular gs employee whether if you want to go work in the private sector if for family reasons you need to you know, leave that workforce. It will. It is technically possible for you to do that and to go get more broadening experiences and come back. But we make it is dif- really as difficult and, and, and unpalatable um, as you could. Uh, by which I mean, if I had left to go work at a large technology company for eight years and got a lot of managerial experience, I would have. I couldn't come back e- easily um, at a higher level than no. I had been at. I'd, I would have to come back, if I did at all, um, uh, at the same level that I had been at, which is just absurd, because you would think that you'd want the kind of workforce that would allow for some e- broadening and exchanging of skill sets and participating in other kinds of um, uh, developmental activities, but that's not in any way incentivized in the, the typical Title Five GS system <clears throat> personnel management.
1: Yeah, so the reasons why you really can't, well, well you know, there are folks who will say, well, yeah, of course you can come back. Nothing prevents you from coming back. Yes, actually, in practical means, there's a lot that prevents you from coming back. First, there you have to have a billet that's open to come back to and there's fewer and fewer open billets every day. Um, That's partly because there's a lot of pressure to reduce the size of the civilian workforce. But it's also because folks don't leave government jobs. Right. The the average age of our uh, federal workforce, I think, is in the late 40s. Um, and that's there's only like six percent or so that's under the age of 30. So we don't we have a workforce that tends to stay put. And there's a lot good in that, but there's also a lot bad in that, too. So there the fact of the matter is there aren't a lot of jobs. Um, and when there are open federal jobs, there's it's very hard to map the right skill sets into those jobs. So that affects me as a as somebody that hires, but it also affects others who know that they're um, talented for a job. It's just hard to shine when you're one um, USA jobs and entry among,
0: you know, a
1: thousand, literally.
0: I want to ask about Um, how this might be initiated or possible reasons why people might be against this kind of system. But I I also want to point out, uh, you know, there's a lot of arguments that people make about wanting to decrease the size of the civilian workforce. And I think there's some some interesting merits to discussing that. But one thing that has struck me a lot is that the size of the civilian workforce overall in government hasn't grown a lot in the last 50 or 60 years. It's grown some, but not a whole lot but the budget has grown enormously. And, yes. and and not just by inflation, but like by just by how much money in real terms um, any one agency is expending has grown a lot. So some of that's contracting, some of that is grants, but a lot of it is we are doing more work by a significant measure than the same workforce was 50 or 60 years ago and much more technically skilled work than was required then Oh yeah, without giving the ability of people to have to go in and out. So since you have this great idea of how we can you know, bring some more rationality to bringing talent on board, um, so what's necessary for that to happen? Does Congress need to institute uh, a new hiring system? Um, who are some of the stakeholders that might be for or, or, or against this? Or um, are, are there any other factors that you think that might go into getting this process started to think through how you would actually implement that the Title X hiring?
1: Yeah. So the first thing that would have to happen is we there would have to be a change in the law. Right now, there are very specific limitations to the work suitable for a Title 10 employees. So that would have to be expanded. Um, and then so let's say that's expanded and, you know, we'd have to decide if that was going if we if it was going to be something that was expanded step by step or just opened up writ large, usually Congress tends to do things in a more incremental approach. Mm-hmm. But regar- regardless, um, you would implement it then sort of by attrition. Um, you, It would be very difficult um, to get the current workforce excited about going from yes. what they see is almost <laughs> lifetime employment yep. to now, oh, okay, I'm gonna do this term thing. So the amount of resistance and fear um, would be mitigated, I think, by by just introducing this by attrition. So, so new billets, every new billet would be, um, an old billet would be replaced by a, a, a new Title X status billet. And there would necessarily be um, some growing pains that went with that, and some rule sets that went with that on managing it. Um, uh, you know, something akin to what NDU uses just to make sure that the decisions remain fair and equitable. The um uh, then the the next step that the the folks who are most resistant to it are are frankly the folks that are in currently in the the more traditional title five type positions now um because it did it does sound scary um i i don't know why i wasn't particularly worried about it when i went to ndu um, but a lot of people do what is this term thing? Does that mean I'm out of a job in three years mm-hmm. and the, and the answer to that is maybe um, you know you can actually apply a little logic and reason and calculate a potential for whether you you know do you, does it look like it's a a limited um, job? And you know what sometimes limited jobs are good sometimes you only need a a, a A service for a very finite amount of time. And as long as that's understood going in, I don't know that there's a problem. So I guess what I'm saying is the biggest um, resistance would be the Title V workforce now um, being afraid of those changes. I think you mitigate that through um, not, you know, introducing this by attrition and also letting, just creating a sense of um, promise about what this could bring. What it does allow is a lot more fluidity in, in the um, hiring process. People can come and go, at least um, conceptually, a lot easier because billets open and close a lot faster. Um, but the fact of the matter is, even under a Title X workforce, if the nature of the job remains, and the person in it remains um, to be performing well. There are folks at NDU that have been there for 15, 20 years. So it doesn't necessarily mean you're booted every three years. So I think these real facts, rather than fear, um, that go with this this type of change might help a lot. But it will start with Congress. And I know they, they have been talking about it. Um, but they haven't wanted to go against the um, the labor union um, and and frankly the i I'm just not sure that they felt the fuss to fund factor was there yeah, but a couple of years ago they were very seriously considering it and
0: then I think it's sort of I don't think they have a strong advocate for it any longer yeah I, this is uh one of the one of the hosts, but Also, real frustrations I had as Congress stood up the the National Commission on um, Public, National, and Military Service, which was meant to look at a lot of different facets of national service. And that, that frustration was there are, there's a lot of people who want to serve their country or want to serve their country differently than they are capable of doing so right now under the present system. Um, And exploring models of national service before we kind of do a a fix internally felt to me like a little putting the cart before the horse. But hopefully they will be able to uh, externalize some of these challenges and maybe create a better demand signal for if we really are serious about building a national security workforce of the future, here's what you would need to do. Um, Well, Laura, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us for the National Security Human Capital miniseries podcast. uh, And I really appreciate it and hope to see more from you on this soon. Thank you.